I'm not saying that I know all historically by any means, but I tried to meditate and think through a similar situation, similar circumstances in this world, and I could not come up with one prior to 399 B.C. This is an unusual moment. We witness here a master teacher with clear mind eating privately with his disciples on the night before he knows that he will die. If a teacher is deathly ill, he is probably not of clear mind. If he is heading off on a dangerous mission, he may actually survive it and return. And if he is scheduled for execution, he is unlikely to have the freedom to spend time with his disciples the night before. This is a most unusual set of circumstances, and it provides an extraordinary opportunity. A master teacher with clear mind and freedom sharing his heart with his students over a meal on the night before he knows that he will die. The similar scene that came to mind is preserved in the Greek philosopher Plato's account of the death of a fellow philosopher, Socrates. An Athenian jury condemned Socrates to die in 399 B.C. for showing disrespect for the gods, which really being interpreted was, we just don't trust you, Socrates. And they granted him, the Athenian authorities, the privilege on the night of his death to meet with his students. And Socrates gathered there and drank a cup of hemlock which provided a painless poison. As he drank this brew, he offered his last words of instruction and counsel to his students. I think of this account in part because of a friend of mine at the university some time ago who rejected Christianity outright, but he encouraged me one day to read the death of Socrates so that I would understand how a pagan dies. He wanted me to see that Socrates dies peacefully and courageously. That there is no fear of death in Socrates. Well, I read the words of Plato as he recounted Socrates' final words of instruction. And as he praised the God of health, Asclepius, he praised this God because this God supposedly provided the hemlock, which would provide a painless death. And as Socrates slipped away, his last words to his students were this, a cock for Asclepius, I think, which means something like three cheers for Asclepius. As I read the death of Socrates by Plato, I gave thanks that I am a Christian. The words that we are poised to consider this morning from Luke chapter 22 is a deeper and richer passage than any of us can comprehend. But let us feed on these words. 
Let us commune with Christ in them, and may he give us a sense of their transforming power and the earth-shaking significance. We find, first of all, the preparation of Christ's final Passover. And I encourage you to pray as we enter into this section of Scripture to pray that we not treat these words lightly, that we not miss the importance of this last meal with Christ's disciples. The Passover festival was a celebration, as we know, of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery. The following week-long festival of unleavened bread commemorated the nation's escape from Egypt. Not having leaven in their bread, they went out into the desert and ate bread without leaven, without the yeast. This is Jesus' last Passover meal, and he desires to spend it alone with his 12 disciples in the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is a dangerous proposition. There is a price on Jesus' head. Jesus has sought safety in the crowds that surrounded him during the day throughout this week, but at night he would leave the city and find a secluded place of privacy, probably each night at Bethany. But now Jesus proposes to go into the city at night. While people will be occupied with celebrating their Passover meals, about the closest thing we can get to in our setting is Thanksgiving at night. If everybody had Thanksgiving dinner in the evening, that would be about as close as we can imagine to what this was like. Jesus is going into the city with a price on his head. His enemies desperately want to kill him, and he's going in without the cover of the crowd and without the sunshine. It's a dangerous proposition. By now, Judas has betrayed him to his enemies, and he is heading into Jerusalem, I believe, secretly. I believe that he orchestrates this last meal with his disciples in secrecy so as to keep Judas and the betrayal away, keep it at bay for the moment. Verse 8, or verse 7, we read, As he came the day of unleavened bread, on which then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So Peter and John know what to do. To, to prepare the Passover. They are apparently two very trusted disciples who can bring this meal about, but they don't know where in the world to go. And so they ask in verse 9, where do you want us to prepare for it? Jerusalem. Picture again, it is crowded with pilgrims and bustling with merchants who are selling uh, the various items that will be used in the Passover meal. The critical task for out-of-town pilgrims, such as Jesus and his disciples, is to find a place to eat the meal. Jerusalem is teeming with bodies, and it is very difficult to find that place where you can gather with your group of ten or more people. So there would be extended families, larger families, or extended families, or in some cases, friends that would gather together with ten or more people to eat this lamb that would be provided at the Passover meal. But you had to find a place. I believe that Jesus has this orchestrated and says in verse 10, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. This is probably not Jesus exercising omniscience, but rather a prearranged sign. Jesus has followers throughout Jerusalem, 
and he has arranged secretly with one of them to provide an upper room in which he and his disciples can share this Passover meal. Jesus commissions these two disciples and explains, instructs them as to what to look for when they come through the gate, a specific gate in the city wall. This servant is also probably in some respect prepared to notice them at a particular time of the day. And this servant, we notice here, will be carrying a jar of water. Or simply have a jar of water, whether in his arms or carrying it, bearing it on his head, as would have been typical for the women in that time. But I say women very pointedly because it was, we have in our culture, women carry purses. It's uh, usually not a real good thing when you see a man carrying a purse. It, just, it might, depending on how he's carrying it, but uh, you, it's just not something you see very often. When you go to the mall, you won't see many men carrying purses. When you went into a busy ancient city, you would not see men carrying jars of water on their heads. You would see many women doing that, but not men. For men, water was carried in the skins of animals and would be put up over their shoulder. So women, smaller jars of water typically borne on their heads. Men, skins of animals sewed up into large, heavy bottles borne over their shoulders. But you will come into the city and you'll see something rather unusual, a man with a jar of water. Now, I think most people would not be concerned about it. You see a man carrying a purse in the mall, holding it underneath the bottom of the purse. You know that his wife's probably in the shop over there shopping and he's got stuck with a purse for the moment. It's not normal, but you don't really think a whole lot about it. And to see this man carrying a jar of water, people probably thought, well, maybe his, his jug or his uh, wine skin uh, bur or water skin burst or something like that. But he, this man will be the one that I want you to follow. And, verse 11, say as you follow him, I want you to enter the house and then say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room all furnished. Make preparations there. So in the teeming crowds of merchants and pilgrims, Peter and John enter the prescribed gate and they see this man with a jar of water. They follow him, I would assume, discreetly at a distance through the masses of people. They see as he enters a house and they follow shortly behind into the same house and they give this important phrase to the owner of the home saying that the master has need. Where is the guest room? where I will eat the Passover with my disciples. The owner of the home then takes them on an ex exterior stairway on the outside of the home up to the flat roof, and on that flat roof is a smaller room, a box on top of a box, essentially. And he shows them this room, which is prepared. That means that it would have had a U-shaped table just a little bit off of the ground and pillows behind that U where the U-shape, where the uh, disciples would recline on these pillows as they ate the meal. There are probably candles that are there provided and utensils in the room. And Peter and John take a look at the room and size it up, and then they go off and begin to make preparations. Their first duty will be to purchase bitter herbs, stewed fruit, unleavened bread, and wine. As they go out and purchase these things, they will then, around noonday, everything, midday, everything will come to a uh, standstill in the city. And then around 2.30, between 2.30 and 5.30, 
that afternoon, Peter and John would have joined one of three massive shifts of pilgrims who would crowd into the temple courts to sacrifice their Passover lamb. We don't know which shift Peter and John were part of, but either both of them or one of them went into the temple area and with this lamb, killed this lamb before the priests, 24 divisions of priests there to serve the people. Normally there was one division of priests in the temple, but now 24 of them dealing with these massive numbers of pilgrims. One of those lambs, now stripped of its skin and slaughtered, is carried by one of these disciples back to that upper room. It is put on a pomegranate uh, uh, wood and, and um, a spit, and it is uh, roasted over an open fire. Eventually, Jesus and the other disciples enter the candlelit room dressed in festive white robes. It is dark. There is an aura certainly that surrounds this room as they gather a time of great concern on their parts, but also a great a festive time as they gather for this uh, Passover meal. Again, something like we might experience at Passover, or, or rather at Thanksgiving time. Not just immediate families, but often extended families and often friends gathering together for this one meal that would go late into the night. And here they gather. As they recline around the table, they gather to eat the commemorative meal, bitter herbs, reminding them of the misery in Egypt, stewed fruit by its look and consistency, reminding them of the making of bricks in slavery. And then the lamb roasted and eaten, reminding them of that lamb that was slaughtered that night, the blood smeared on the posts, and the death angel passing over and giving Israel deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It was a time of great rejoicing. It was a time of unity. It was a time of focus on the salvation of God in history. I don't think any one of us could miss the point at this place in the narrative that Jesus Christ is clearly in control of the situation. He is orchestrating events. He is coming into a, t a situation of great danger, but he is in control of what is happening. One commentator, uh, Kent, R. Kent Hughes, says Jesus is in control of his destiny. He was not caught like a rag doll on the relentless gears of history. Jesus is plotting to the cross. He is preparing for it. He knows that this is his last meal. We see the preparation for the meal, and then we come to consider the new meaning of Christ's final Passover, beginning there at verse uh, 13. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. We have here a new prophetic focus for the meal. First of all, concerning the bread. That is described here in verses 15 and 16. I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. This is not only Jesus' last Passover on earth, it is His last Passover before the consummate celebration meal when the kingdom of God comes. 
This night's meal prophesies a future triumph in salvation history. It marks the doorpost of a new era of salvation history. Between those two meals, as Jesus says here, he will suffer. Verse 15. And what is true concerning the food of this meal is also true concerning the drink of this meal. Verse 17. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. There were four ritual cups at the Passover meal. We might use the word something like toast. Uh, four uh, toastings there at the meal. The leader of the feast would make a few comments and then all would drink together uh, of the cup. And at one of these cups, we don't know which one, Jesus says that he will not drink again until the kingdom comes. As with the food then, the drink takes on a new prophetic focus. It points forward Jesus reveals the typology, the typology uh, and the typological nature of the Passover meal. God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt served in the mind of God as a preparatory act for a consummate deliverance. Jesus must first die, but he will return to establish his kingdom, and this meal declares that fact. Jesus initiates then here a radical shift in emphasis to a future establishment of the kingdom. The leader of this meal would be assigned the responsibility to declare the importance of the elements of the meal. But Jesus here changes everything. And he says there's an entirely different focus from this point forward. There is a new prophetic focus for this meal. He has taken the bread, and he's taken the cup, and he has said they look forward from this point on. Now he will take the bread and the cup again, and he will give them new symbolism. There is a new symbolism that is here in the meaning of this supper from this point on. Not only is there a future focus, but this new symbolism for the bread, verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I guarantee the apostles' heads are spinning. We know all about this Passover meal. We know that the, the herbs are for the bitterness of Egypt and the unleavened bread is about what happened in the deliverance from Egypt and the lamb and the... What is he saying? I'm sure that they were remembered, they remembered through the Spirit's guidance phrases from this meal, but there's no way they probably could have begun to conceive of the radical change that Jesus is introducing here. He lifts up the bread at this place, this large loaf of flat bread, and he tears it apart in pieces and says, this is my body, which is for you. What does he mean? The bread of Passover symbolized the affliction of Israel's departure from Egypt. But Jesus now speaks of a new affliction. This is my body which is given for you.
A literal reading of this phrase leads some to the conclusion or to the understanding of transubstantiation. The Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, would say that when Jesus said, this is my body, it miraculously became his body. And as we gather, as such Christians gather on the Lord's day, they receive the Eucharist, they receive the bread, and believe, in fact, that it becomes as the priest lifts it up before them, it becomes the body of Christ. The wine in the cup becomes literally the blood of Jesus Christ. As something of a modification of that view, Luther believed in what, he called, what was called consubstantiation. That is, we do understand that it really is bread and we do understand that it really is wine, but the body and the blood of Christ are mixed in there somehow. There is a literal presence of the body and blood of Christ in the elements. Others, I think, more properly have seen here a non-literal interpretation. Jesus does not say, and I, I think to me this is the clinching idea, he does not hold up that bread and say, this bread will become my body after I'm gone. This cup will become my blood after I'm gone. He holds it up then. They can see his body and his blood obviously courses through it and they know the difference between the bread that they are eating and the body of Jesus Christ. There's not some mystical presence in the elements that will be carried forward. Whatever Jesus meant right at that moment is what he means as we receive the Lord's Supper. This is my body. It would be, if it were not so serious, it could perhaps be humorous when we think of such an interpretation when Jesus said, I am a door. Now, the disciples clearly knew Jesus wasn't a door. They didn't go up and look for the handle and knock on his forehead. When he said, I am the door, he's speaking figuratively. I don't think it's any different here when he says, this is my body. He is speaking figuratively, and many have understood this through the centuries. The bread in his hand was not literally his body, but it stood for his body. It was a symbol of his body. There was communion with Christ in this bread as it would be received by these people. And you'll notice that he says there again that it is given for you. This is my body which is for you. This is a reference, of course, to his approaching death. It is a stunning change of direction. The master of the feast again looks not backward but forward. The new affliction in view is not that of unleavened bread in the desert, but of the bread of life crushed for the redemption of God's people. Everything that had happened in the first Passover and that entire celebration was now coming to a new age of fulfillment in Jesus Christ. His body is the bread. His blood symbolized in the cup. And we see that follows. He deals with the bread and now with the cup again in verse 20. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, if we see multiple cups offered during this meal, then it's no problem to see here another use of the cup or reference to the cup. He took this cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I'd like us to turn back to Exodus chapter 24 
and to notice just by way of cross-reference at verse 1, the context, the biblical context of Christ's statement. What does it mean that His blood is the new covenant? Or that this uh, cup is the new covenant in His blood? Exodus chapter 24 and verse 1. We go back to the old covenant, to the first covenant between God and His people Israel. Chapter 24 of Exodus says, Then He said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord, and others must not come near, and the people may, that, and the people may not come up with Him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Notice that phrase, verse 3 of Exodus 24, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant that is God's word establishing his covenant with Israel, and he read it to the people, and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. So there is here the establishment of what we might refer to as a contract, but more accurately of a covenant between Israel and God. Israel agrees to obey God's word and to enter into relationship with him this way. Now notice verse 8. Moses then took the blood, and the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So every Israelite would know that the blood of the covenant was a reference to the sacrifice that indicated the relationship between Israel and God under the Mosaic law. The blood of the covenant. It was a ratification of this covenant. Now in that context, remembering Exodus 24 follows the Exodus, follows the giving of the law, in that context, when Jesus says this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he is clearly referring to a change in the relationship between God and man. A radical change, in fact. In a greater sense, the blood of Jesus Christ will introduce a new covenant between God and His people, a new way of relating properly to God. This new way is in His blood. That is, it is ratified or it is sealed with His blood, which is poured out for you. So think Moses, Old Covenant, sacrificial offering. Jesus says it is now Jesus, New Covenant, my blood spilled out for you. There is a radical shift that is taking place here. On the following day, Jesus Christ would shed His blood for sin. 
And on that day, a new era in salvation history would dawn. The veil of the temple separating the people from God would be miraculously torn in two. Jesus' death would provide a new way of access to God. Not through the blood of sacrificial animals, but through His own blood. A new covenant would bring God and sinner together based on the mediating work of Jesus alone. To find its fullest fulfillment, its fullest application in that coming kingdom of which this meal, which this meal prophesies. One author says very well in conclusion that Jesus reinterprets the symbols of the Passover and gives them new interim meaning. Such meaning resides in the symbols until he returns. In fact, the symbols are a reminder that he is returning. This is a stunning transformation of the symbolism of this ancient meal, indicating how radically significant is Christ's death. From this point forward, the people of God would commemorate this meal with a view to the yet future consummation of the kingdom of God. From now on, this meal would constitute a communion with the crucified and risen Savior whose blood atones for sin. And in this last meal with His disciples, Jesus shifts gears. He shifts the gears of salvation history into overdrive. He opens the gates on a new era. The foundations of salvation history are shaken to their roots with the significance. Yet as Jesus soars on the heights of this radical shift of focus and symbolic meaning, he moves seamlessly to the immediate circumstances. Notice the next phrase, But, verse 21, the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The one who would trigger Christ's final suffering was in the room. The instigator of Christ's execution was reclining with him at this table. Verse 22, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Woe to that man who betrays him. We see here again the compatibility of absolute divine sovereignty. The Father turns the Son over, but those who crucify him are wholly responsible for the crucifixion. I think if I asked each of you here, what is your ultimate setting of worship? If you could define exactly what that would be, I'm sure not two of us would agree entirely. But go ahead and dream for a moment. Here's what it would be. Here's where it would be. Here's the kind of building or not building. and Here's the kind of music and here's the way it would take place. Here would be the ultimate service of worship in my thinking whether it would be somewhere out under a tree on a beautiful day or in a cathedral with arching roof and stained glass window filled with the echoing sounds of a well-tuned choir, whatever it would be, 
wherever you would say that to me is the ultimate experience of worship, I want us to stop and think for a moment. This is one of the most important moments of worship in history. And the aura that prevailed in that room on that day was one of betrayal and intrigue. It was one in which the specter of death shrieked. And it reminds us that God is not worshipped in any place until He is worshipped in spirit and truth deep in the human soul. Mature believers can feed on Christ even in the midst of enemies who want to devour them. They can worship God in the midst of a fire, Daniel's friends. They can worship God with bleeding backs in a Roman prison, Paul and Silas. And they can worship when they lean on the breast of their betrayer at an ancient meal. The ultimate worship takes place not by what we create in, on the externals, but by what is going on in our hearts. Jesus worships next to Judas Iscariot. In fact, we learn, I think, throughout history that often the most severe trials help to focus the attention of God's people in worship. They do so because trials produce a longing to see Jesus come again, to eat the marriage supper of the Lamb with Him in eternity. And I wonder, as we've considered this account, I can tell you, I cannot begin to explain and feel as such a failure this morning to explain the radical importance of this meal. We do not begin to scratch the surface of what has changed in the ministry of Jesus Christ and what we now celebrate in this meal. But I ask you, with all the failure of human language and with all of the weakness of heart, do you want to be with Christ in His kingdom? Is there a longing there to find the fulfillment of what Jesus is teaching here? We cannot know that we will be there unless we come to embrace the death of Jesus Christ in our place and His resurrection and victory over sin and death and hell. Jesus Christ shed His blood to set in motion a new covenant in which God's people can relate to Him in forgiveness. What an amazing event this was. What a profound truth. But I ask of you, do you want to be in that kingdom as it comes? A master teacher eating with his followers as he prepares for death. And we sense that we've stood on holy ground can we begin to realize how rich we are as the followers of Christ. On the night of his execution, the great philosopher Socrates rejoiced before his students in his painless death. At his final Passover, Jesus prepared to suffer the ultimate agony. 
He did not drink hemlock to die a painless death. Jesus' body was crushed and his blood was shed in agony and he stood before his followers and said, I give this to you. I lay down my life in agony for your forgiveness and redemption. His body was crushed. And in his final Passover, Jesus pointed to his blood, which would be shed in agony. Famous painting from the 18th, 19th century artist David emphasizes the cup of hemlock that was in Socrates' hand. It's an intriguing um, work of art that many have drawn all kinds of conclusions from it, but the emphasis of that picture, one of the main emphases is that cup of hemlock. That quiet, painless death. The emphasis here, and by the way, I should add in that, in that piece of art, there happened to be 12 students of Socrates gathered around him. It's interesting. But with that painless cup of death, Socrates goes into a Christless eternity with the words, a cock for Asclepius. That's how a pagan dies. A meaningless phrase given in half-cocked devotion to a nothing God. A death of ease. A death where there was no fear, because there was no fear of God. How superior is our Master's farewell address. And I call you to think about it for the rest of your life. He holds the bowl of wine aloft in his hands, and he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Remember me. Remember me until my kingdom comes again. Until the kingdom of God arrives. Remember me. Let's do that this morning as we honor these very words of our Savior. Our Father, as we bow before you, I pray that you will continue to prepare our hearts to receive this meal, this token of the work of Jesus Christ in our behalf, this bread that is his body, this cup that is his blood. We praise you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the new covenant relationship that is in that sacrifice. And we gather around this table now to prophesy the future coming of the kingdom of God. Lord, as we pass this bread, we ask, Father, that we would receive it in communion with one another and in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.